I got a bunch of meat. All right, let's get off the dribble and get into the meat. (laughs) (laughs) If you're following in uh, the handout notes, it's page 16. If you're in God's Word, it's page 11. They're not necessarily equal. Uh, As I said last week, verses uh, 2 through 16 of chapter 11, um, especially um, 2 through 6, probably some of the most difficult verses in the whole Bible. Um, They they really are um, a challenge for us for some grammatical reasons, which I briefly talked about last week. But I think perhaps, uh, to some extent, because in the culture in which we live today, it's it's very, very difficult to use the word head as it is used in verse 3 without creating a storm of controversy, which is attached to words like um, slavery uh, and the, the language that is a part of uh, the feminist um, the vocabulary. Um, as I said, if I can, because several of you weren't here last week, let me stipulate a couple of things really, really quickly that uh, are so important from Scripture. Whatever the Apostle Paul is talking about here, we know two things. One, it is in the context of the worship service. We know that because, among other things, in verse 5, he talks about praying and prophesying. In verse 4, these are things that go on in the worship service. He is not talking about the workplace. He's not talking about business here. He's talking about worship. Second, uh, it is absolutely imperative from the perspective of God and the perspective of his word that the issue is not equality. Men and women are equal before God. They're equal in his image, Genesis 1.26 and following. Male and female, he created them in his image. I am not more in the image of God than my wife Peggy as well is the matter of salvation. Salvation equally is available in all of its fullness to the male and the female. I am not more saved than Peggy. Galatians 3.28, and Christ at the cross, there is neither male nor female. And third, I am equal with my wife as a joint heir in Christ. Second uh, uh, Peter 3.17, I think it is. And so at least the issue is not equality. That's not the issue. And I think that's one of the reasons, and I'm saying this very carefully, and I'm in an all-male audience, but sometimes, sometimes the way in which the argument is constructed is a straw man. They're making it an issue of equality. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not make it an issue of equality. So here's the third point by way of introduction, and it'll be done. The Bible addresses male, female from the perspective of roles, R-O-L-E, roles. It's not equality, and the Bible has virtually nothing to say about male, female roles in business. It doesn't have anything to say about that. It's very specific when it comes to the role of the family. It is less specific, but there is still perspectives developed about role relationships in the body, in Christ, in the church, the, the, the local church. But I repeat again, it has absolutely nothing to say about business. I've had people ask, can a woman really be a CEO of a company? Absolutely. Nothing the Bible prohibits that. Not, nothing whatsoever. Can, it, can a woman be my boss? Absolutely. There's nothing in the Bible that prohibits that. You read Proverbs 31. Here was a woman in ancient Israel who was very much involved in business, in charge of many, many, many people. You have in the book of uh, of Acts, Acts chapter 16, where Paul shows up in Philippi, the very first convert in Europe is a very wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. But that's not the issue. People make it the issue, but it's a straw man issue. What Paul, whatever Paul is saying in this very complicated passage, he's talking about role relationships and what is really the issue is how men and women are adorning their body to come to worship. And it involves something about what they put on their head. <laughs> and honestly, uh, as you, if you look at verse 4, 
each man who has blank on his head. Your translations most likely have something and put it in italics, which means the, the object is not there. We don't know what he says. It's, it's, it, it's frustrating because he's clearly talking about worship while praying or prophesying. Woman who has her head uncovered while praying. It's, so it's dealing with issues that affect worship and affect male-female roles in the worship service. All right, now that's, I think, pretty much the groundwork we laid last week and talked about. And I, I'm really very thrilled and excited that I'm almost done because we're almost out of this. But any questions or comments? Are you with me? Because uh, several of you weren't here last week, and I want to make sure we painted that, uh, maybe I'm mixing my metaphors, laid that groundwork again, that foundation again. Okay, Joe? How much of this, or if any, do you have to, I guess, adjust Huge. Yes. You do. You do. Um, this is a uh, whatever is going on here, Joel, in verses two through six specifically is cultural, and we are not. We honestly, I, I can show you in my office. I have a couple of books on this. There are probably a dozen attempts to understand what is going on here culturally. And that, that's part of that issue. So I think our goal then, given what you just said by your question, which really was a valuable statement, is our goal is to seek the transcultural principle. Do you understand what I mean by that? A principle that transcends all culture. And that's, that's what we have to find here. Now, we started talking about that last week. We, we started getting to that point last week. The Bible makes it clear that however you come to worship service, you dress in such a way, you adorn your body in such a way that you do not draw attention to yourself. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. and, and it seems to me that does overlap in what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a, So that's one transcultural principle because, oh, I, I don't know, I'll use an example. If you're in... Uh, if you're in Africa or in, I'm thinking of now the Southern Hemisphere churches where the Church of Christ is just exploding in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, the church in the Northern Hemisphere is dying. The church in the Southern Hemisphere is exploding. But if you go to the Southern Hemisphere and you go to Latin America or Asia or Africa, you are going to have probably hundreds, if not dozens, of different ways in which men and women adorn their bodies for worship. Hundreds, maybe not hundreds, dozens of ways in which they have different hairstyles. You cannot say there's only one way to dress coming to worship. You, you can't say that. But what you can say is the Bible says, do not adorn your body in such a way that you draw attention to yourself. And I used that outrageous example last week of a woman coming to worship with a very tight blouse on and a miniskirt. With lots of makeup and, her, you know, she walks into the service, what's going to happen? All eyes are going to go to her. And instead of the eyes and, and, and mind and focus and emotions being on the Lord, all of a sudden, and so that's, that seems to be, a, you see that in Tim, Paul's letter to Timothy, you see it here. A second principle, and I can't remember if we got into this last week, but a second principle is however you adorn your body for worship and however you engage in worship, you maintain the gender distinctives. That is a second key principle. You maintain the gender distinctives. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5 for just a minute. I'm, I'm pretty sure we did not. I think I ran out of time last week. But if you go to Deuteronomy 22, verse, I hope it's verse 5. It is verse 5. Now, you're, you're going to say, but this is the law of Israel, the Levitical code, and that's been... Replaced. That's true. But this verse can be buttressed and supported throughout the scripture as a transcultural principle. A woman shall not wear a man's clothing, neither shall a man put on woman's clothing. For whatever does, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. 
Now, at this point, I'm not particularly interested into drag and transvestite. I'm not interested <laughs> in those kinds of issues. All I'm interested in is that we think about what God's saying here. It takes you back to the creation ordinance of God, which is Genesis 1 and 2. Male and female, he created them. Do you understand why that's such an important principle? God created the human race in two streams. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. So it is important that whatever we do in life and whatever we do in worship, whatever, that those distinctives are maintained. Because that's what God did. God created that. That is a transcultural creation ordinance, bedrock, foundational principle. So now this is a corollary question. I'm not necessarily interested in asking it and answering it because I think it's evident. But the farther a culture gets away from God, the more you're going to see those gender distinctive elements and gender distinctive roles blurred. Mm -hmm. That's just naturally going to happen. Paul says that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 34. One of the evidences of a culture in decline is, and he mentions these kinds of things, a culture that leaves the Lord and leaves its, his foundation. So, and all I'm trying to get our arms around is it is very difficult to know exactly what was going on in Corinth in verses 2 through 6. As I said, it probably meant a pagan practice for men in the Greco-Roman world is when you went into one of the Greco-Roman temples, you took your toga and covered your head. Paul seems to be saying, you know, it's probably not wise for you to do that when you go into worship service for, for as a Christian. Because you're, you're, you're kind of doing something that has pagan connotations and you don't want to do that. And for women, it was typical in the Greco-Roman world for a woman to have her hair up. Uh, I don't remember if I said this last week, but if I, uh, if I speak of a woman having her hair in a bun, do you know what that means? It was kind of something like that. But it was highly unusual to see in public, whether it's in worship or in a gore or anybody, women having their hair down. I mean, just loosely hanging down. As a matter of fact, we have a lot of extra biblical evidence of this. One of, the, one of the signs of a prostitute was that. That was, that was a sign that a man could always see. Well, she's, she's a woman of the street. I can approach her if we're down in a corner somewhere because of the way she's adorning her body. And so, Paul, whatever Paul's talking about, he seems to be alluding to something like that. And then he says at the end of verse 5, I mean, she, if that's what she's going to do when you go to, to worship, you might as well have your head shaved because when a prostitute was found guilty, that's what they did to her. They shaved her head. So if you don't mind, and I, I certainly will take any questions or any discussion you want to have, I, I'm not sure we can be convinced of exactly what was going on culturally in Corinth that Paul's talking about. But we can draw from this two principles. Principle number one is you do not adorn your body in such a way that you draw attention to yourself. Principle number two, however you're going to adorn your body, maintain gender distinctives. A man should not look like a woman, and a woman should not look like... What does that mean? Well, that's a cultural question. Because you go in the Middle East, it is, it is not unusual to see a man looking very much like a woman. Or you go to, to the northern uh, sections of Scotland, you see men wearing kilns, which is a, is a skirt. But that's cultural. The Bible isn't saying men don't wear skirts. The Bible is saying men don't dress like women in, in your culture. Maintain gender distinctives. Well, Any questions? Yeah. It is really warm in here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, I, let me ask you for questions or comments. I guess my main thing is, are you with me? Do you understand? I'm trying to stay away from some of these things and get to those transcultural principles. Does your silence mean understanding? Is that what that means? Absolutely. Yes. All right. Paul then gives, and I outlined in your material, um, 
it's very clear grammatically how he's doing this. He gives five reasons for this teaching. It's kind of important stuff. Reason number one takes you back to the creation ordinance of God. For man ought not to have his head covered. Again, however we're understanding that, since he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. Boy, they are really popular verses to read and talk about today, aren't they? But I want to remind you of something that is so important to make sure you have this clear. The Apostle Paul, as he's alluding to Genesis 2, is not saying anything about a value judgment of a woman, about the worth of a woman. Because remember, the issue is a man and a woman are totally equal before God in terms of being in his image, in terms of salvation, in terms of being a joint heir. But there is a difference. Male and female, he created them. And all Paul is reviewing in these verses is God created Adam first, said it is not good for a man to be alone, therefore I will create a helper. It's a beautiful Hebrew word, absolutely gorgeous word. One who completes him. And so he created woman. And all, and it's what we do and what people, see, this is men are superior to women. Men are to hammer women into obedience. That's not what this is saying. All it's saying is God created two different streams of humanity. Man first, woman second. Those gender distinctives are rooted in the creative acts of God. They have nothing to say about the worth and value of, a, of, of the woman or the man. That's not what it's talking about. The order of God's creative activity. To make it clear that man alone is not good, woman is needed to be his complement. C-O-M-P-L-E, complement. And those of you that are married know that your wife is your completer. Man, I realized I've been married to Peggy for 44 and a half years. It didn't take me too long to realize I got a lot of weaknesses. But God in his grace gave me Peggy, which those strengths she has come together with my weaknesses. And where she's strong, I'm weak. And where I'm strong, she's weak. But together, my goodness. And that's all he's, he's making, that clear summary of what God did and why God did what he did. Not making a value judgment. Second, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angel. Okay, let's... Symbol of authority on her head. And again, the, 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 the language there in Greek is incredibly problematic. So may I paraphrase this? Therefore, a woman should wear something that maintains the gender distinctive on her head. <laughs> because of the angels. Which, okay, raises a whole bunch of questions, doesn't it? All right, first of all, <clears throat> who are the angels? What a broad question. Who are the angels? Human beings? What are the roles of angels? We haven't covered that chapter yet. <laughs> it's a ministry. It's a total setup, because if anybody gets into that question, you know where he's going to. I mean, he's going to get us in all kinds. He does it to me all the time. But I'm not saying I'll work. Terry. <laughs> You're charged charging with being a duplicitous, deceitful <laughs> human being. <laughs> the word angel means messenger. That's what it means. Are there ranks of angels? Yes. There are. And I mean, I, I don't want to get into that, but there are. 
Among other things, and, and this is, I think, probably where Paul is finally ending up with this comment of his. Among other things, angels guard and protect the divine order of things. If you go back and study very carefully the use of the word good in Genesis 1, God creates and he declares good. Good is understood as that which brings order, structure, and is conducive to life. That's what he did. He created a universe that has order to it. Day one, day two, day three have to do with order and structure. Day four, day five, and day six have to do with life in, and teeming life that is to fill all of those categories of God's world. And he declares everything to be good. That which brings order, structure, and is conducive to life. And when you understand that, then you understand why Satan is the prince of darkness. Because Satan brings disorder, chaos, and that which is destructive to life. Angels are to guard the divine order of things. And part of that order is the role responsibilities, the role differences including the gender differences. And when you cannot tell the difference between a man and a woman in terms of how they adorn their bodies and whatever that and however that's understood uh, culturally, because of the angels. The angels, the Bible tells us, are constantly watching the human race. And they are baffled and, and they are frustrated by what they see humans doing. And as the Bible tells us in other places, they're utterly amazed when someone comes to faith. Because they don't have need of salvation, and yet they see God's grace. They're just amazed at what God's doing. So Paul is just telling us that the, when the angels see these distinctives not maintained, it's frustrating to them. I don't know how else to put that. Because of their role. Are you with me? Third? I was, gonna, I was told, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I was told that that same word for helper, referring to Eve, is also the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, referring as a helper. Well, part of the challenge, of course, helper is right. Hebrew, and the right. New Testament is using Greek. They're somewhat equivalent. I think more significant is there are five times in the Psalms, I think it's more than that, six times in the Psalms, where that term, Hebrew term, helper, it's used of God. That's even more powerful. In other words, using the exact same language and making the exact same correspondence, it, it doesn't, it's not a term of inferiority or subordination. It's exactly. simply saying God is our helper, oh. one who comes alongside and strengthens us where we are weak. What a wonderful thought. That's why God gives, gives women. Gives women. The third reason, Dave, are you scratching your head or are you asking a question? No, I'm scratching my head. Okay. Third question is this, I didn't know what else to call it, so I called it the interdependent. However, in the Lord, neither is the woman independent of man nor a man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate with, from God. Now, I don't, I, I hope you, 11 and 12 are not difficult verses. All they are saying is that God has created his world in such a way that there is an interdependence. An interdependence. Um, that's another way of putting it. An interconnectedness, a mutuality between woman and man. That's the way God created it. I, I take you back. It's just so important to do this. I take you back to the creation ordinance of God. Male and female, he created them. And he created them for a purpose as male and female. Obviously, one purpose is procreation. And every aspect of a woman's body is different than a man's body. And among other things, that purpose is procreation. Whether it's the genitals, or whether it's the absence of presence of breasts, or whatever it is. 
God created them different for an express purpose. And in every other area, the, a man alone is a fool. A man with his wife is wise. And I mean, it's just, on, and not that everybody has to be married, but the point is that in every aspect of the world, the way God's created it, you need the man and you need the woman. There is an interdependence there. That's the way God created it. And so therefore, it is imperative that we maintain that distinctiveness. You cannot make a man into a woman, and you cannot make a woman into a man. Jim, uh, can you comment on the non-physical aspects of it uh, that might be pointed out here, too, just to show there is differences? By it, you mean the difference between a man and a woman? Oh, heavens, yes. You know, left brain, right brain difference is is very clear. Uh, There's emotional differences between the two. There are, uh, and, and of course the physical differences, but I think there's these intangibles like general, I mean these are broad stroke statements, but generally much, a woman is generally much more compassionate and much more nurturing than a man. A man is generally um, much more mission oriented and focused, whereas a, and, and, but you put those together, it's, it's really quite powerful. But you see, the farther the culture, and the farther I mean distance, the farther culture gets from God, the more culture doesn't want to see that. Mm-hmm. And you keep reframing the question mm-hmm. and in a way that then actually undermines the very reason God did what he did. In creating male and female, he created them. And I don't know about you guys, and I'm, I'm trying to stay away from any of these things that we just always think about from homosexuality to on, but... Just everything about our culture. Keep it very broad. Everything about our, well, maybe I shouldn't say everything, but so many things about our culture are doing this very thing Paul's talking about here. Mm-hmm. Breaking down gender distinctive, distinctive, blending the roles. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It does. Those things matter. Because male and female, he created them. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, 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 it's really very, very sad because in my judgment, and I might be wrong, but in my judgment, those who really are being negatively affected by all of this are children. Mm-hmm. And they become more and more confused, and so they grow up into a very confused adult. Mm-hmm. And I rather suspect, you don't need much imagination to see that today. <laughs> Whether it's, my, my daughter teaches fifth grade, the, the utter confusion of these little boys that she teaches in first grade. They have no idea what it means to be a man. And I don't, I don't mean a, a guy is out, you know, chopping wood or marching down shooting. That's not what I mean. They just have no idea what maleness means. And again, it's a very broad statement. And a little boy tries to act like a little boy, they put him on Ritalin. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, not, you know, I'm not trying to justify anything except that, that it's the wrong approach. And there's a masterful sociologist at Harvard University, her name is Christina Hoff Summers, and she, I mean, she's a sociologist from Harvard. I didn't say Saddle Creek in the West Coast or from Harvard, and she's saying, this culture is engaging in a war on the boys, the title of one of her books. We are absolutely destroying a whole generation of men. And, and coming, and she's coming at it, not from the biblical, nothing, but from a sociological perspective alone, and she says, "This we are going to pay for this in generations to come. Yeah. And I think we're already starting to see that. It's just because you have to keep coming back to the thing that's in the creation ordinance of God so clearly. Male and female, he created them. Do you happen to remember the name of that book, Jim? Uh, well, she's written a bunch, but one of them is called War on the Boys. You said Christina? Christina Hoff Summers, S-O-M-M-E-R-S. Was Paul successful in changing the mindset of the people at that time by his teachings, or the people were falling apart anyway? Like the differences between men and women and homosexuality and stuff like that. Was he able to successfully change the mindset? If you're talking about changing the mindset of the Greco-Roman world, no. If you're talking about changing the mindset of people who came to know Christ from the Greco-Roman world, yes. 
so he kind of helped the birth of a new mindset within the whole generation of the Roman Empire. Uh, of Christians. Of Christians. Yeah, that not, not the whole empire, okay. but to those because it's really fascinating by the year 300 or so, many of the mores and practices of the Greco Roman world are in decline because the church is growing. Mm-hmm. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But then the Roman values like this start catching up with Christians again. Is that true or not? To, uh, to some extent, but much, much, but it would it would not be a Greco-Roman; it would be something else. Mm-hmm. Because what you have then is, well, I think you know this historically, but the Roman Empire goes out of existence. The, the date we usually use is 476. Rome doesn't exist anymore. And what replaces it in terms of uh, be the right way to say it, authority structures and culture centers is the church. But then as the church becomes more and more institutionalized, mm-hmm. it, it, doesn't, it doesn't become like the Greco-Roman world, but it takes on its own corruption and so on. And then you get into the early modern world, then a whole bunch of other things change and so on. But what's, all you'd have to do is today is say the Greco-Roman world, isn't it? But the, what I have written about, the postmodern culture is overtaking the church. The values and morals and ethical standards of the postmodern culture are infiltrating into the church. And I, again, that's a very broad statement, and I'm talking about the, the local bodies, not necessarily all people who name the name of Christ. But, and that's, that's probably uh, why it is, that's one of the reasons why I chose to study 1 Corinthians this year, is the things that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians are extremely applicable to us. And this is a this is a good illustration of this. It man, man, it is. I know this is a very unpopular thing to say today. It is what you and I are talking about today, from a, diff, a variety of different venues. It's extremely unpopular, but unashamedly, I'm teaching this because this is what the Bible says, and you can either take it or leave it as God's word. Mm-hmm. And the 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 bedrock for all of this is the creation ordinance of God. Not what Paul is saying. Because the, 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 the uh, critic of Paul says, oh, he's just a rabbi, you don't have to listen to him. That's the wrong perspective to have because he is not appealing to Leviticus. He's appealing to Genesis too. Which is the very first thing God laid out as an ordinance. Okay? You Okay. Me? Yeah, I'm, you get, got through the hard part there? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to get to verse 17. Please, Dave. It's obviously very uh, relevant today, but that long, I mean, 2,000 years ago, was it that relevant? Was there that much of this blending going on? Yes. Just feel like right now. Yeah. Because, I mean, okay. did we skip something? Because was there that much blending going on? I'm kind of thinking of, you know, at the time of the Revolutionary War, didn't seem like, you know, I'm not a historian, it didn't no, seem like no, that, that was no. that relevant. No, it, that, generally speaking, you're right. The, the distinctive, the gender distinctive roles and all the things, you dress and all that stuff, very just, that was not an issue in America. But because we have a church that started new and then the disease started catching up with it again. The same thing with the Romans. He started a new church and the disease started catching up with it again. So what, how can we apply this in our life right now other than get us angry and upset from the things that's going on? <laughs> well, how can we apply this? Well, the, well, I'm trying to get you to apply it to your own life. Is This is your perspective, yeah. and this is what you're going to teach your children. And this is what the local church will be teaching. Mm-hmm. In my lifetime, I have never heard this passage preached in the, from the pulpit. Now, it may be just, I just never happened to be there that day. But I have never heard this preached. Mainly, and, and I know guys, because it's so difficult. And nobody's going to preach it nowadays because it's very controversial. Well, I mean, that's part of it, too. But, and, and I'm not trying to dump on pastors, because I, I mean, I have some of my closest friends are pastors. That's very difficult. But what I'm saying to you is, Mark, your responsibility is 
not to overthrow the United States government and get this changed. That, I don't think that should be your perspective. It is, it, is, it is your responsibility to make sure that your son and your family understands this and that you are living this way. And that's true for everybody around this table. And it's, it's extremely important, I believe, in our churches that this is taught and modeled. And it's it's uh, and done in such a way that we're not um, um, how do I say this? Those who are choosing to live a homosexual lifestyle or are transvestites that they are irredeemable sinners are horrible. Uh, you know, I, no. Our goal is still how do we reach them with the message of Christ. That's still that's still the objective. And I mean, it's but the challenge for us now, and it's get, it is getting more. It's more difficult now than it was ten years ago, twenty years ago. Yeah. Uh, and it it unless a massive national renewal, spiritual revival occurs, it's not going to get any easier. It's going to get any more difficult because now the um, the uh, approval and sanctioning of law. And the political order is coming in line with this, and more and more and more and more and more, this position that the Bible is anchored in God's creation is marginalized. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, I really believe, and, I, and, and this you may think that, but I really believe there's a real possibility in 10 years or less that Christians will go to jail as hate mongers for talking about this in this way. Now, still, the laws of the United States, as it applies to this, say under, under certain contexts of a religious teaching, we won't throw you in jail. But in business, in certain business contexts, you can be fined. What's going on right now? That's what I mean. You, for, for talking a little bit the way Paul's talking here, not so much about men and women, but about some of the specific sexual things. And outside of the United States, Canada and Western Europe, it's even worse. No. I mean, you can literally end up in jail. A Canadian pastor ended up in jail for preaching against homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Now, that's still, uh, that's not happening in the United States. Now, we're getting a little beyond this. I'm trying to stay away from the emotional things and, and make sure we're focused on what the teaching is of God's word here. In the context of worship, dress in such a way that you do not draw attention to yourself and dress in such a way that gender distinctives are maintained. And Paul finally then, verse 13, I don't know if I have to go into this, but judge for yourselves it is proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. This is language that is symbolic, the way God has done things and the way culture reinforces it. And Paul is just saying, isn't that common sense? Even the way you look at a man or a woman in terms of their hair, there's a difference. Just maintain that difference. Then verse 16 is just, this is what I teach in the church. I don't have anything else to teach. This is what I teach in the church. Was it correct, Jim, to show the depictions of Jesus with long hair. I've heard that, that was, that's really not accurate. The only way it would be accurate is if Jesus had taken a Nazarite vow. That's what I yeah. And there's no evidence he did. Right. There's no evidence he didn't, but there's no evidence that he did. But um, that picture of Jesus' with long hair comes from a very famous painting uh, made in the 1930s that everybody started putting in their front rooms. Of their homes, and <laughs> I can remember them. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, but we have we just don't know. Uh, but typically, in, in all, that time, in, yeah, that's right. In all, if it was typical, Jesus would not have had long hair. Unless, again, unless he had taken the right. Nazarite vow. Right. So, what's the pendulum that's, that made it swing back the other way towards a non-mixing of you know genders? if it was obviously swinging much more towards the way of mixing in genders, there, there's something that changed. Do, do you mean at the time of Paul? Well, yeah, at the time of Paul, but obviously, you know, as, as history went on to the, you know, 
I mean, I'm, I'm probably the you know, most familiar from like you know the say 1600s to the 1800s, where that was not well, at least in the history of our America, was not prevalent. So, what what happened? What was the impetus for that to happen? Well, really, uh, it was this. Uh, these are broad statements that you're making, and I'll answer it in broad statements. For the most part, from the time the Roman Empire, the Greco-Roman world was declining and goes out of existence, until the last third of the 20th century, this wasn't an issue. Nowhere right. in the Western world. Right. It was not an issue. But it had been. Back in the Greco-Roman exactly. world. And it was, and my argument would be that the the triumph of Christianity is what ended this. Mm-hmm. Was Christianity that relevant? In the- By three hundred, it was. Mm-hmm. Constantine in three thirteen issues the Edict of Milan, which <laughs> legitimizes Christianity, and within uh, approximately ten years. Christians are in the government, and I have a graph I use when I teach church history. It's, it's amazing. What happens to the number of Christians? It absolutely explodes. Mm-hmm. And then and Constantine starts bringing Christians into the government, and by the year 500, roughly, I'm rounding all these dates off, Christianity is the dominant force in the Mediterranean world. And so these kinds of issues, for the most part, are just not issues anymore. And they, they honestly, I mean, again, you, you, will, you, always, you have always had transvestites and cross-dressers, but, they've been, but now it's been in the last third and particularly in the last 20 years where all of a sudden it's exploded because the question is being reframed. The question is now framed in our culture around rights and liberties and autonomy. I have the right and liberty and autonomy to do whatever I want. You can't tell me any differently. Now, that's a crass statement, but essentially that's, that's it. And so with no moral or ethical authority, that's what's triumphed. And, and it started by the time of the Church of Europe, actually. That movement started in Europe, not in the United States. We got infected from the United States lately. But well, that's essentially you're right. This was lots of it in Western Europe. As Western Europe was, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Francis, Schaeffer, Francis Schaeffer used to say, Watch Western Europe. Whatever Western Europe is doing, it will come to the United States in a decade. I think it's now about six months. And that's very cynical. But, I mean, it's just because, you know, of technology and how things communicate. But, I mean, it is really – I mean, my son lives in in England and in London. And um, they're they're, – in some ways, it's really amazing. In some ways, London is more conservative than New York. Yeah, Really? Which is really, that's, it, it wasn't always that way, but it's just, things have so accelerated in America. I mean, Britain still has a, sh- and that might, you might, I'm not saying Paris, but I'm saying London. There's a certain conservative nature to, to London. But homosexuality is not London. No, 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 I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm talking about, I'm talking about the general ethos of the city. Uh, and I'm not so much talking about the northern part of London, but the central part. It's 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 really kind of interesting. But anyway, you were talking about the southern hemisphere. Christianity is exploding. Uh, Latin America, Africa, and I know in China to a certain extent. Absolutely, in oh, yeah, countries. It it, we're very kind of Western in our thought, and postmodern seems to fit into Western thought very well. Um, how? Is that permeating those cultures too? This, I mean, is the thought kind of different? I mean, is is this more easily understandable? Uh, this this whole man and woman equal before God, but first and second in these roles. Is this more easily understandable in those cultures? Do they do they question this the same way we do? I don't think so. I, I think it is more easily adaptable and understandable. Uh, mm-hmm. I do. Um, but it's not going to take too long <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> yeah, right. because of this stuff, technology and, and other things. But, uh, you yeah. know, all right, can we move on? You know, I, I, uh, we are not in a hopeless 
No. 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 It just seems like, you know, we, we've had it like this, and we, we are not necessarily going to stay here. I mean, we're either going to go deeper or we can maybe elevate, but I think, I don't know, it just seems like that the, the, the Holy Spirit that indwells us Jesus, through Jesus Christ is as active today as he was for the disciples sure. within us. Sure. And we are not to give up. No. Nope. I mean, part of our, our message has to be Christ mm -hmm. is the answer That's to the answer. spiritual mm -hmm. matters. And once that is achieved, these other things will follow. And the manufacturer's handbook is the guide to living. Yeah. One of my business friends calls this the manufacturer's handbook. No, but the hope, Fred, is in in Christ, uh, not in any other area. Uh, and and as people come to know Christ, that's where the transformation occurs. If they don't come to know Christ, then we will continue to see this dysfunction deterioration. Verse seventeen enters into another area of discussion about liberty in worship. Now, let me. If you, because some of the things he's going to start to say are not going to mean very much unless you understand the cultural context. So would you let me take just a couple of minutes to paint the picture of what a typical worship service looked like in A.D. 55, which is roughly when 1 Corinthians was written. As you know, church occurred in worship, I mean congregation, people coming together for worship, always occurred on Sunday. The Bible makes that clear the first day of the week they gathered. There were no buildings, so they gathered in homes, what we call house churches. When we studied Romans, you might remember a year or so ago, we identified from Romans chapter 16, there were five house churches in Rome. We don't know how many there were in Corinth, but there were house churches. Because there's no other place. Sometimes they would rent a hall, but largely they were house churches. And so you're not talking about a very large group. Thirdly, this is always true. The church, the local church, was the most socially equal congregating of people in the ancient world. Indisputably, that was true. Because you would have the very wealthy meeting with the very poor. You would have a master meeting with his slave. You would have men and women, children. I mean, it was the most social, equalizing institution of the ancient world. Typically, you would meet on the first day of the week of Sunday for virtually the entire day. You would start your, I'll make up a time, but you know, 9.30, maybe 10 o'clock, something like that, but you would come together in somebody's home, and there would be singing. I mean, there was. There was singing, but it was you know, no instruments sometimes, but for the most part, no instruments. Then you would have an extensive reading of God's Word. It could go on for an hour, an hour and a half, because the people did not have their own Bibles. They didn't have copies of the Bible, whether it was Old Testament or some of the circulating early books of the New Testament. Because the reading of God's Word was so important, because nobody could generally speak and read it. Then you would have what you and I would call a message an exposition. Then you would take a break and you would have a Baptist potluck lunch. <laughs> now those first three words are made up. But it's what they called the agape meal. We know there's a lot of extra biblical stuff on this. The agape meal. You might recognize this is what becomes known as the love feast. What does that mean? Everyone, uh, I mean virtually everyone, that would come to the service, to the, the day together, would bring food. And um, wealthy uh, Greco-Roman people who come to faith in Christ would bring a significant amount of food. I mean, um, Paul talks about this in Romans 14. Sometimes they'd bring pork. 
which was the greatest delicacy of the, of the ancient world. Um, and they would bring wine, which was a very typical thing to, to, to drink in the ancient world. Uh, Christians drink it all the time. And uh, what would happen is they often wouldn't share the food because there were very poor people that would come. Because remember, this is the most social, equalizing institution in the ancient world. And so you have, and you can just, you can, in our culture, you can really see this happening. You'd have the wealthy congregate in one part, and the poor over here, and the wealthy aren't sharing with the poor. And you have the poor either having almost nothing to eat or drink, or just a little bit, and these people over here, they're gorging themselves with food, and they're actually drinking too much wine. And so at the end of this potluck meal, they would then celebrate the Lord's table. That's why it's called the agape meal or the, the love feast. And so it was to be a time, and, and this, this worked well, but in Corinth what had happened with this distinction between the rich and the poor and all that, you'd have some of the very wealthy people having taken, you know, the, the lunch would be at two, two and a half, three hours at the most, but, you know, time for relaxation and fellowship and eating and so on. Then they'd come to the Lord's table drunk. Having gorged themselves with food and had a lot of wine. And this is what Paul is addressing. Do you have the freedom to have the love feast, to potluck meal together, sharing food together, and capping it off? Absolutely, nothing wrong with that. But this practice has deteriorated into something that is highly offensive to God. You're getting your eye off the ball. It is now a time of drinking and eating and fellowshipping. And it's just like what used to happen in the idol temples. You've lost the purpose. Now, do you follow me? If you don't understand what I just said, some of his language isn't going to make, it's, it's going to, what's he talking about here? So I'm hoping what I just summarized helps, help, will help you to make sense of what he's about to say. You got it? You with me? But in now verse 17, he's switching subjects from how you adorn your body coming to worship, particularly your head, there's something else that's going on when you come together. But in giving this instruction, what instru- the one he's about ready to talk about, I do not praise you. Because you have come together, not for the better, but for the worst. And he's about to explain what he means. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. In part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. And he goes from the word divisions, which is an important word, to factions, which is a very serious word. It goes from kind of a superficial word to a very deep, deep meaning word a word of intensity. These aren't minor superficial divisions. These are deep-seated factions. And from what we see in verse 20 through 22, these are socioeconomic factions. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, one is hungry, and another's drunk. Now he is giving in verse 21 the context, the agape meal, which you eat first. But what's the result, the end result, when it's all over? You have one who's hungry, and another's drunk. You have the two ends of the potential spectrum. People who bring nothing to the potluck because they are so poor, they can't bring anything. And the other end, you have people bringing lots of food and lots of drink, and they're gorging themselves and they're drunk. So you have the two extremes. 
Jim was there. That's the nature of the divisions and the factions that he's talking about. In the house, were there like pastors, were there leaders? Sure, of course. And so Absolutely. There were, there, there were elders and deacons. Paul tells us that in other parts of the New Testament. And, and so what are they doing while all of this is going Well, I can't answer that because yeah. he doesn't address this, but what we certainly can infer is they were not addressing it. Do you follow what I'm saying? Whether they're participating in it, I don't know that. Perhaps they were, but what we do know is they were not addressing it because he is addressing it. Mm-hmm. I know I took my jacket off. It's time to quit. I was getting so high. <laughs> and then I looked at my watch and I got to quit. So, but anyway, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to set you up. So look at verse 22 with me, and we'll, we'll tie the threads together, and then next week we'll get into verse 23 and following. This is, I'm reading NASB, and this is great. What? I don't know what your translations have. But it's like an interjection. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Do you understand that rhetorical question? If you're going to gorge yourself in food and get drunk, do that at home. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? You, you can, you, do you get the biting nature of his question here? One, by doing this, you're despising the body of Christ, the church of God. You're despising it. You're treating it in a despicable way. That is not why you come together for worship. To gorge yourself with food and get drunk. Do that at home if that's what you're going to do. Because by doing that, you're despising the church. And then here, here it takes you back to the divisions and factions. You're shaming those who don't have anything. Can you understand what he means by that? You or what? You're shaming them. The church is to be the unifying factor in life for the believer. It's just the opposite in what they're doing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Hmm. I can just can't you just hear him saying this? I don't have anything to praise you for. Now we're out of time, but it's really instructive what he does in twenty three through the end of the chapter. He takes them back to the upper room and he reviews why Jesus instituted the Lord's table. He's not condemning their freedom to have the agape meal. He's not not condemning a potluck. If that were true, every Baptist in the United States is guilty of the unpardonable sin because there's nobody that eats more than Baptists on these potlucks. I'm being really facetious here because Presbyterians have been known to do it. No Episcopalian on planet Earth has ever had a pat potluck. That doesn't happen. Just kidding. What's that? Yeah, right. So, but we'll we'll look at how he deals with this next week because he takes them back as he did with the material about how they're adorning their body for worship. He takes them back to the themes of the creation ordinance. Here, he takes them back to the words of Jesus. Why did Jesus institute the Lord's table? Which is really always a great way to deal with things. Are you guys with me? This is t- chapter 11 is such a hard chapter to teach. We're almost done with it, praise be to God. So. <laughs> but, uh, I was Remember, hoping. you chose the book to study. I know, I did. But you know, as I told you last week, my prayer was that the Lord would come before we got to <laughs> Lord, we're thankful for this time around the Word of God, and thank you for these men. I'm just, Lord, I'm amazed, honestly, but I'm also comforted by the fact that there are men in this city who want to take an hour out of their life on a busy Wednesday to uh, uh, sit around a table and just talk about God's Word. Uh, Bless them for that, enrich their lives for that, and help them to be more and more sensitive to your presence in their lives, to the Spirit, that they will be bringing their lives and having an influence in their families in some of these areas that we've talked about this uh, this day. These are very difficult things to talk about. These are very unpopular things to talk about in our culture. 
we can almost imp- find it impossible to say some of these things in the broader culture and even perhaps in some of our churches. But uh, I don't see very much ambiguity here or lack of clarity. Paul has taken us back to the creation. Male and female, he created them. And to maintain those gender distinctives is very important to God. It's very important throughout the teachings of Scripture. And therefore, it's important to us. Bless these men. Enrich their lives. May they be a blessing to others. And in all that we do and say, may we represent you well. In this we pray. Amen. Have a good week. Thank you, Jim.